0: Hi, everyone. I'm Claudia Sarek. And I'm Zach Mack. And this is So You Want to Run a Restaurant, powered by Back of House, where we let you have a seat at the table and talk about trending topics in the restaurant industry. Okay, so we have a really interesting guest this week, Chef Nick Gonring, who is the corporate consulting chef for Gordon Food Service, one of North America's leading food distributors. Um, and I think that... Nick truly has one of the coolest jobs ever.
1: I mean, I would completely agree. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing, I've never met anyone who has, even as someone who knows a bunch of people who reviews restaurants for a living, I've never talked to anybody who's, Gone to that volume of restaurants in that short amount of time.
0: No, no. So part of Nick's job is doing culinary research and culinary trends. It is an absolute dream job. So he travels around the country eating at all of these different restaurants, talking to chefs, talking to restaurateurs um, to track and explore culinary trends. So I think on average, he hits about 120 restaurants in a three-week period which is just wild. Like, how... I don't think I could do that in three months. I know. <laughs> and I go out a lot. <laughs> I know. I, I was actually adding it up in my head, and I thought, well, let's see. Here. On the on the weeks that I have a really heavy like schedule of restaurants, how many would I hit up? And I'm thinking to myself, maybe three or four. But no way. Yeah. 120. I mean, you have to take a bite and then run
1: to the next one. Right. My my first paying job in New York at a, at a food magazine, Yeah. I got sent on an assignment. I was really excited about it, and I had to do a, a rundown of... 15 different restaurants along hudson street over in the west village oh wow and i was really excited at the yeah. time because that was you know this is what i moved to new york to do and then when i found out i was gonna have to do it all in an afternoon through an evening i didn't realize even my 20 year old body wasn't going to be able to handle so much food in such a short amount of time <laughs> and these restaurateurs, even though they knew we were media they were they were like okay no you got to finish this you got to eat this wait really I was they were just doing a bite oh, yeah no, the last stop was this Italian place in the guy Piccolo Angolo, to this day. I'll never forget this. He made me eat two lobster cannellonis. Oh,
0: and my I was del-
1: I And I had ingested so many calories, I was seeing trails. <laughs> I, it was unbelievable. <laughs> so it, it was very, it was a lot. I, I honestly, but to, to see that these guys have done this and they take it professionally, and not only that, they do, they do it to such a larger scale yeah. than I ever did blows my mind
0: I know and the whole logistics of it and the tracking which Chef Nick's going to talk more about but um, right. you know like the, the photograph the, the photographer sorry the photographer that follows them around and the fact that they have to PDF all the menus and um, so I, I'm super excited to get into this with him and, to, and also to get a glimpse on what we can expect to see when it comes to up and coming culinary trends if he'll he'll kind of let us let us see what the rest of 2022 yeah, has so. in store it'll be interesting
1: if anyone's going to tell us what's coming up I feel like it might be him so.
0: absolutely Trust 20 is a proud sponsor of the So You Want to Run a Restaurant podcast. Trust 20's ANSI-accredited food handler certificate training is the freshest course on the market and made with the worker in mind. It's interactive, entertaining, and the test at the end is even gamified. Yes, you heard that right. Get your new team members up to speed on food safety in no time. Today, right now, this second, you gotta do it. Trust 20 Food Handler Certificate Training is available for individual and group purchases. Head to their site, Trust20.co, again that's Trust20.co, and sign up for the newsletter to stay up to date, because Trust 20 will also be launching a food allergy certificate training this spring. Get your team a certificate today. Well, so we are so excited to welcome Chef Nick to the show to talk about his role with with Gordon Food Service, how he translates his research into actionable insights, and what he sees as the next big thing in culinary trends. Chef Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Yeah, Nick, it's
1: great to have you here. I think this is awesome. Um, There's so much I have to ask you because what you do for the company is pretty amazing, Uh, and and I think most people would kill for your job, Uh, but- uh, before we get into that, I kind of want to talk about uh, what what brought you to working in kitchens in the first place, because everyone's got a story attached to that. And even though yours isn't the typical restaurant job or the typical cooking job, it's it's important. So I was just wondering if you could tell everyone a little bit about your background.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I think uh, you know everybody's got a, a story of how they got into kitchen business, right? A lot of them are the same, or some are super unique. I, I don't think mine's necessarily that unique, but I I grew up in the Midwest my entire life. So from Wisconsin, primarily Milwaukee area, to Chicago and now Grand Rapids. Um, so I always say I'm, I'm moving around the lake. Maybe next, next stop is Canada. I'm not sure. But um, <laughs> no, but gr- growing up just out, outside of Milwaukee in a smaller town, mm-hmm. like 30,000 people, pretty, pretty big with the farming community uh, out, outside of the, the town I grew up in. And, um, you know, when I was a, a younger kid into middle school and high school, I worked in restaurants, but I never really thought about it as a career path, to be honest. Um, even working in uh, farms in the summertime, on like strawberry farms in um, in Wisconsin, and then when I got to college, um, it's really when I decided that what I w- was going to school for was really not what I was interested in. So I was originally going to school for political science with the intention to go to law school,
1: and I was I, w- <laughs> I missed two of us. do wow. did the same thing. <laughs> I'm not <a> lawyer either. <laughs> yeah, did yeah. you really?
0: Yeah, yeah, I that, didn't know that. Didn't yeah. What a pivot!
2: Not for me either. So, uh, yeah. but but no, it was really like the first time I think because I was living by myself, like living on my own, right, and cooking for myself, and then like cooking for friends and people, and I just you know loved loved cooking at that point in time, and it really could see why, you know, the instant gratification, the piece about just being artistic and just doing my own way for the first time was cool. So I pivoted. I mean, I went to culinary school. I I quit going to UWM, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, went to culinary school at MATC in Milwaukee, and then decided simultaneously to do both schools. So I got permission to do both schools from the university level because my culinary credits weren't applicable to which would become business credits. Um, I ended up getting a finance degree from uh, UWM instead of political science, so no law school. Nice. Um, but through all that uh, in schooling is really where I got immersed into kitchens. So, I mean, I would literally just go to school and cook all day and night between classes, whatever I had available at the time I was cooking. So um, that's really where I, I, I cut my teeth and just kind of fell in love with kitchens. I mean, I was in kitchens all day long, basically, between school and work and just sleeping and then getting back up and doing the same thing on the grind. Yeah. But, um, you know, kitchens just became family. I mean, every place I've ever worked at, You know, your kitchen crew around you or front of the house crew, your whole restaurant crew became your like immediate family. I mean, you see them more than you see your own family because you're all in it together. But just the camaraderie building of that and then on the on the chef side or the back of the house side, it's really just like the the artistic nature of cooking and plating and, you know, seeing a kitchen that is like a scratch kitchen cooking like a minute to order, but doing volume, you know, like the like the theatrics of that you know almost like it's like a performance of things where people have to be on their game to work together to get out the food it was just it's just a cool environment that rush is is something that you can't explain if you've never been in those shoes right but um, no, it's just something that grew on me I became a a lifelong learner of food you know just meticulously taking notes from anybody that would want to talk to me about food and just really just going all-in and it's been that ride since from uh, Milwaukee into you know, actually becoming the GFS later on uh, outside of Milwaukee. But, um, yeah.
0: I have a feeling that your college cooking was very different than mine. So it probably wasn't just grilled cheese and scrambled eggs.
2: It's like one of those deals where you go, you go all out, like, one meal, and then you're broke for, you know. Then you're broke for, a while. for like, yeah, the rest of the month. You're doing, like, lifting yeah, pasta yeah, sides, yeah. you know, getting crazy with those. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of that in college. <laughs> so
0: you've been – yeah, exactly. So you've been with Gordon Food Service for more than a decade now. How did you, you, you leave school, you decide you want to do cooking now. How did you move into that and get into Gordon Food Service?
2: So I was a customer uh, of Gordon Food Service. I was buying oh. my food from them. Um, oh. I had a really good relationship with my sales rep. And um, at the time when I was well, purchasing purchasing from GFS, we we, we hadn't, started building the Kenosha Distribution Center yet, which would be you know, our D.C. in Wisconsin. And he said, hey, I don't know what you're, what you're going to do when you're done with school, being UWM. Yeah. I thought about it. And I'm just like, just trying to get by day at a time. Um, but he said that they were going to hire some sort of like test kitchen chefs uh, in Kenosha. And I you know, perked my ears up and I said, you know, tell me more. And um, this was back in like 2009, I think. And so I went to a food show in Grand Rapids just to network and to talk to people and to understand a little bit more. And I ran into, you know, Chef Jerry, who was the corporate chef at the time, and I asked him, you know, hey, how did you get in your job? And he gave me his story. And um, yeah. you know, I got back to Wisconsin to find out really that there, there wasn't any test kitchen jobs available. There were there were marketing jobs that were product specific things that people internally had already grabbed. And somebody offered me a sales job. And I'm like, hmm. Interesting, huh. you know, it wasn't quite quite what I was thinking about, but um, <laughs> right. at this point in time it was like, you know, I've been working kitchens in a while for a while and I was, you know, uh, trying to think about the next move and I took a leap of faith in the kitchens for, for that, or out of kitchens for that, uh, into sales. So, I mean, I still was in different restaurants every single day doing different things, more so consultative work than selling, which I think was maybe why I was successful in that, uh, Mm-hmm. You know, not trying to just push product on people, but get back in the kitchen and actually have a conversation with people because I understood what they were doing. But um, went from sales uh, into whatever sort of culinary role I could find because we didn't have a, a culinary kind of process or or any sort of roles back then outside of the corporate chef level. So um, sure. I moved to Chicago to take on a a, uh, a, a business business, uh, uh, like a like a sales targeting business uh, strategy role for Halpern's uh, Steak and Seafood when we when we bought them and acquired them, and that was the right. most culinary driven mm-hmm. role I could get into at the time because you're just talking center of the plate, the best cuts of the center of the plate, um, and be able to be creative in different restaurants and cook with people and show them the diversity of, you know, what you can do with this and how you can include it other ways and um, you know just different menu options that worked out so that was great and then we finally decided to make a culinary role inside of our divisions um, for GFS back in 2016, 2015. And so I I took the the regional chef job for Chicago at that time and uh, did that for a handful of years. And then um, uh, started working with Chef Jerry, the guy that I talked to many years ago who was the corporate chef and got uh, a job offer to come and be his uh, associate corporate chef and uh, work his succession plan for his retirement so I could take his role. And, uh, that, wow. that's where i that's where I'm into today for the last three years here in Grand Rapids.
1: That's, that's incredible. It's a, I mean, what an arc with a company too. You, you did end up getting the yeah. job that you wanted originally, even if you had to work a little roundabout to get it. Yeah. But so what is your day? I mean, there is another element of the job that we already, I kind of dropped a hint about earlier, but what, what's a day-to-day job? What's it, what's a day-to-day experience like at your job? What are you working on, uh, you know, Monday through Friday usually?
2: Gosh it's uh it's what aren't you working on i should say (laughs) it's 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 wild um i mean we used to have a few people in our culinary department and through COVID, it's really just been myself so got my hands in all sorts of pots and it's really just what is the what is the thing i have to get done today um sort of environment that i live (laughs) in but uh no i mean a lot of it's consultative work right so looking through the research lines which i'm sure we'll get into to think through how that can help the organization so anything from you know, publication or writing work into obviously recipe development working with category teams into product driven initiatives um, I mean whatever the flavor of the day is that I can use whatever insights I have to whatever capacity that is yeah. to, to lend ideas insight or credibility into the process of things and um, I mean that, that's a wide a wide swath of you know different lanes inside GFS land and so sure. I I get pulled into a lot of di- different directions because of that, um, but we also have you know, just over 40 regional chefs or culinary specialists in our GFS footprint, which includes Canada. So you know, we all work together in that space. I try to make resources and things for them because they're truly the boots on the ground to work with our customers. Uh, so we can you know, show the differentiation, make things applicable from like a research level or new insights level. And you know, really help our customers make them different in, in their competitive space. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, but no, there's a there's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like well, it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So you touched on the trends research, which is what we are so excited to talk to you about today. So I'd love to segue segue over to that next, because um, I know that the trends research in general involves traveling around the country doing. Just that trends research and asking eating at a ton of restaurants, talking to a lot of chefs, tasting, tasting a bunch of different things, and we have to we have to hear more about your target of 120 restaurants in three weeks. Do we have that one right?
2: It is right. So 120 is the, <laughs> is the target in three weeks. They're not, they're not consecutive weeks uh, in a typical year. There, there's like a week or two gap in between those because be, it, it Okay, because be, we were wondering be, that it. too. It be,
0: How do you eat? You know, we, we, we take yeah. a break
2: like around Thanksgiving time, so we can eat some turkey, and then we come back at it. But yeah,
1: I um, was even a week off. Seems like that's like that. That is a lot of restaurants to jam it in. Is. So yeah. I saw forty one in New York alone.
2: Yeah, so we, we we went to quite a few places in New York this last past trip. So we went to it wasn't quite forty. We hit thirty eight and four hundred and forty one dishes is what we tasted in New York back in December. Oh my
0: goodness! Um,
2: you know, and it's it, it's whatever you can deal with. Logistics are always difficult to figure out how to cram 40 restaurants in five days. and
1: Right. I mean, I feel like I can barely schedule dinner for my fiance and myself uh, in the span of a week <laughs> in New York. So the fact that you are able to do this out with, I think I, I remember hearing you say you have like a group of like six to eight people that come to each place. And I imagine like getting all this, and even just the logistics of getting around. Like it's, it's been, and this is not an easy city. Things go wrong. Like, sure. has anything ever happened? Like while you're, while you're charting this out, what, uh, what has really been like the hardest before we get into kind of the nitty gritty of it, what's been like the hardest thing? How do you tackle the logistics of something so grand? What do you, how do you, how do you map this all out? I guess when
2: you're talking about New York specifically, we only go to two different boroughs and we go to Manhattan and to Brooklyn. So you kind of, you know, we're only looking at a specific geography instead of all the boroughs, you know, which would be a whole different story of five days and trying to get through what we're trying to accomplish throughout all those places. So it makes it a little bit easier to, to digest, pardon the pun. Um, But no, so so Subway, Ubers, I mean, that's really the name of the game. And it's really looking at, you know, the almighty Google Maps and looking at the the filters of time and day and trying to figure out, like, planning ahead. So if I'm going here at this day at this time, you know, what does that look like and what's the fastest route? So, I mean, if it is by car, then so be it, we'll take an Uber. If not, in a lot of instances, you know, we can get underground faster than above ground depending on the time of day. So... Well, you know, we'll we'll take Subway and, you know, we'll walk mm-hmm. a little bit, whatever. And sometimes walking is appreciated uh, after eating a bunch of food and <laughs> yeah. don't feel, feel so good about are you yourself. From, are
1: you sure you're from the Midwest? Because that sounds like a pretty New Yorker take on how to get around. Right oh, here, so. I mean, it's,
2: it's got to be it got to be efficient. <laughs> so, um, you know, we want to maximize yeah, our time as much as we can. So we have to be efficient about where we go. But now the logistics are difficult. And to, and to your point, some other things that are tougher, just looking at, actual hours of time that restaurants are open that you're counting on. Uh, And a lot of time...
1: I mean, because there's only so many hours in the day that they can only do so many lunch visits. And imagine the menus, like if you're planning out for a place, it's not going to be the same menu at lunch as it is at dinner. That all has to come into part of consideration. For
2: sure. For sure. Um, Yeah, because you can only do, we only do three, maybe four dinner stops uh, a day. And four, I mean, four is a stretch. I mean, when you're like in New York and places are open later, I mean, even in Chicago, places are closed at 10 these days uh, coming out of COVID. I mean, like they're not open late. It's 5 to 10. Like, that's it. So, um, you know, if you can get four stops in for for dinner reservations, that's nice. You know, but you'll get back to your hotel at midnight. Um, That's just what will will happen. But, yeah, so we have to kind of look through all those different places of, okay, this place didn't quite make the cut, but what do they have for lunch? Are they open for lunch? Does it look good and exciting? Is it like a similar experience to what we'd have for dinner so we can kind of get that you know, same kind of picture right? and include that as a, as a lunch stop. But we have to be conscious about those for sure.
0: Well, how do you even decide that, though? So how do you pick the actual restaurant itself? Is it you're looking at who was on the James Beard list? Who was you're looking through Eater? Are you looking on, yeah. I don't know, social media? All those things are
2: accurate. And we're yeah. kind of jumping around. But the process really is to look at new restaurants that have been opened in the last year. So for the past, you know, we're going on a 20th year of research between only really the cities of New York, L, and Chicago. And it is looking at the new restaurants that have opened up in that space in a year's time frame. And that's those cities in particular. I mean, there, there are food capitals. There's no question about it. Uh, but it's also because they open up more new restaurants than any other city in the U.S. between those three. So the... You know, the amount of restaurants you have is, you know, an opportunity to look at maybe a little bit more microscopically than most to figure out what they're doing and if it's something you want to investigate further on. But um, like for New York, for example, I think I had about 250 targets of restaurants that had opened um, and I I gave it a little bit more of a grace period than a year just because of the fact of COVID. And there was a lot of things that were changing because of that. Some places, you know. Right. Not opening, or did open and close and open, you know, and still open now, um, you know, things like that. But um, looking at those targets of new restaurants and trying to figure out what are the best opportunities to go and see, and some of it is just literally looking at eater, like to your point, Claudia, of like restaurant openings, looking at infatuation, looking at timeout, uh, any sort of like publication that's going to release that information. Unfortunately, there isn't one that says everything. Uh, you know, of course. And, uh, you of know, Eater is great, but they'll miss restaurants that open, um, you know, is great, but they'll miss restaurants that are open. Eater will have some that they don't have. I mean, like we want to try to turn over every stone as much as possible to see what, in fact, had opened. And it's also important because some of the ones that get the most praises are usually those dinner stops and we can't have all dinner stops. Right. We have to find, you know, the gems throughout the course of the day, you know, so we can, we can hit all those places up. Um,
1: also too, if you're, if you're peeling stuff off of places like Eater and Grub Street, how are you like ensuring that you're going to be able to get into some of these places? Cause that's, that's a, that's a part of this as well, right. Yeah. Is, is making sure that you can actually sit down.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, we have done a lot of interesting dining, uh, especially these days. I mean, like if we're talking <laughs> about get into these places, like because of the fact like reservations or we're talking about getting into places because there's literally no seats. I mean, there's a whole different dynamic there. I mean well I mean, yeah
1: that actually That but there's another question there too is like I'm sure COVID has made it a very different situation across the yeah. board it probably had to change some of your I tactics I mean
2: d- during COVID where it was like really COVID-y and we were like in Chicago a lot of places weren't open for dining period yet I mean the, the capacities right, yeah. were like 50 just turning over 75% uh, so people had, didn't want to quite open yet the math didn't work so it was like takeout, delivery or patio first come first serve so it's like you know just kind of like hawking patio spots and like Trying to figure out, first of all, is there information legit that's online? I mean, like, trying to get a hold of somebody like, wait, do you have a patio? Oh, you do. Okay, how many seats yeah. are out there? And is it first come, first serve? Like, you know, and just is like. This menu right? Are you, you even know, open? Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it may sound silly, but it's like, you can waste a lot of time if you're wrong. That's for sure. Um, Definitely. But the transition into New York when restaurants were open at full capacity, I mean, a lot of the concepts that had opened, especially during the, the immediate parts of the day, I mean, they don't have seats. I mean, zero. It's takeout windows. You know, it's a postage stamp that maybe has a counter and you could stand in there if you wanted to, maybe eat. I mean, you'd probably look weird. Um, You know, so we ate at a lot of tables outside in the middle of December. I mean, but that's a very New Yorker thing. I mean, all those, all the, uh, all the, I like to call them like glorified shelters of the outdoor dining places that you could eat on the street. You know, that people had put up during COVID because of the fact that they couldn't have indoor dining. So they created these you know, and and some some places were really extravagant with, with, with what they were doing. I mean, as, as far as putting like, you know, the yurt villages together and making them independent like dining experiences and booking those spaces. out. Right, I had some
1: meals at some places. I was ready to move into some of the places that I saw. They're incredible. Seriously, insane. It? They look
2: like mini concepts of of places. Uh, super nice. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I think we totally got off topic there. So, I apologize. No, but, no. But, I mean, I mean I, was it's, it's,
1: about it's about pertinent to what you're doing. Well, we were talking about the process of you putting this together and it's actually, it's important because it does kind of factor into trends and stuff. I was really curious to see outside of the actual like logistics of what you're doing. We can go back to like the, the, the rundown of how you do this in general, but was there anything that you think COVID influenced in terms of like the recipes and the trends? What, what, what was moved around by the virus? Like what? Were restaurants doing differently execution wise, other than the fact that they're packing more stuff to go and maybe serving it on one use plates on a patio seat.
2: Yeah. So I think some of the concepts in particular that you know, we're talking about, like you no know, seats and things like that, a lot of them were driven by singular menu focus concepts. So like, you know, I'm just going to do fried chicken sandwiches. That's it. You know, like, but yeah. I'm going to do them really right. well, and they're going to be really cool, and they're going to be delicious. But I'm going to have ten things in my menu, and it's all going to be fried chicken sandwiches of various forms, right? Different ingredients, whatever right. have you, sauces, things like that. So, like people were just being smart about their, for one, their bandwidth of what they had to work with, cost a square foot, right? You know, inventory turnover, like how fast can I turn my inventory over to profitability? Um, supply chain stuff. People obviously figured out pretty quickly of things that they can't get or can get, and that. Made them adapt to change quickly, um, but there was a lot of singular focus concepts um, that yeah. had come out that way, and some of them were, you know, more interesting than others that, you know, weren't on uh, weren't on our radar before. But fried chicken, fried chicken sandwich is the easy way that I can explain it. When you see Michelin chefs throughout COVID that would close the restaurant and open up a fried chicken sandwich concept because, you know, it was just a, a smart idea for them to be able to get into that space, do volume. Uh, do something like you know really high bar and get you know their cult following behind them to buy their chicken sandwiches and put it out on social media and things like that and be successful in that space. A lot of people found better balance in their lives because of that.
0: It was a lot. It was the comfort food of COVID. Yeah, for
1: sure. I was eating a lot of fried chicken during COVID. Yeah.
0: Mac and cheese, COVID, COVID fried chicken sandwich, although not like not COVID fried chicken sandwiches, but you know (laughs) what I mean? So, okay. So you, so you go to all these places, you're tracking everything. You're looking at all these different culinary trends. Um, So, and then as I understand it, the you're using that to inform specific proprietary recipes that you make available to customers. So I'd love to talk uh, or to hear you talk more about how you take what you've tried and create them into something repeatable for customers, and how you actually then take all of this data and share it out.
2: Yeah. So I, th- I think I think I have to go back a little bit when we're talking about the process of getting into what restaurants yeah. we're going to. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Because I think part of the process of looking at it, and I like to speak to it like it's detective work, um, because. I mean, really, we're trying to we're trying to build cases, like build cases of why we're saying things are relevant. And the yep. only way we can do that is to provide the different instances that we see uh, through our experience to show people that here are all these examples that are real. Um, so, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, look at it, right? And so if we're talking about something that's new that we have in repetition that we saw frequently, and we can provide that and show people like, here, look, I mean, it's You can't really deny that it didn't happen, because it did, we have the proof of that. So when we're looking at restaurants and we're seeing things that we think are new-ish, new ideas, new concepts, new ingredients that might be um, unique that we haven't really talked about before or seen, or some things that have been like percolating on our radar for a while that we see so we start to like snowball into something. Um, But when we're looking at restaurants, and we obviously we're looking at the menus, that's where we're deciding that we're going there, but you know you can start to formulate and see things you know in real time when you're making these reservations looking at menus of like all right i see now i've seen a couple of menus doing something you know along that same line so you're kind of like you know keeping that to yourself and as you keep going on make reservations especially between east coast west coast and in between it's like you're hoping that you see more of that because then you know you're on to something you're like on that trail of it right so I mean, you get excited about finding that more frequently and you're like, now I have to go there because I need to check it out. Um, so you can kind of build together, like I said, this case of these examples and see what people are doing. What What is a good example? What's a bad example? I mean, just because it's an idea doesn't mean it's a good one. We've had a lot of places we go to and the food isn't great, but the idea was really good. And it's like, how can yeah. you make that idea better than how they executed it? Um,
1: yeah. Right, you're not reviewing the restaurant, you're just kind of trying to provide context of of what they're doing. Right, so that's
2: kind of like the nuts and bolts behind why we're going to where we're going. But then it's also when we're there, the documentation of what we're doing is really, really important because things get lost quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you eat 400 dishes of food, it's easy to forget, you know, what you ate two restaurants ago. I mean, to be honest. Yeah, I can only imagine. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we, have a, we have a photographer that comes w- out with us to take pictures of all the plate presentations that we get out at the table. So we're taking really good shots of the food. And then uh, we're I mean, not, maybe not so much today, but typically we would scan every menu that we'd have at the restaurant that we're sitting at at the table um, because not often uh, the menus online were the same as what we had in front of us. They weren't updated or they weren't current or like this was the menu of the day. So it wasn't online the same. So if we didn't have the actual description in front of us thereafter, we couldn't find it online. right? So we had to capture that mm-hmm. menu in real time. So something that we would do is part of the process of scanning a menu, just like a PDF scanner on our phone uh, with, a, with a good picture that's scannable in the PDF. Um, so we had that stuff, but the next day, the photographer person would have to be up all night editing the photos, you know, cropping, coloring, things like that, and then putting it basically into a giant deck, like a you know, PowerPoint presentation. So we would put, they would throw the photos into uh, our slide deck where we could get up then and type all the menu descriptions out underneath that photo, any sort of notations that was relevant about what we thought about that food or some nuances that were not on the menu, specific texture or garnishes or whatever it might be, things that the server might have said or people that were willing to talk to us about what we were experiencing and um, you know, all those sort of notes. So every single day we're recapping the, the day before and that's how we go about the whole week until it's done. And if we don't do that, it's, it, we, it's easy to, to get lost. Um, and all those little nuggets of information are so important to tell the story and to also try to you know, piece together that case of information because you know content is king, so you need it all and try to get everything out of it. Um, but it, it's what we do with it thereafter. And that's kind of like the, the working up to the point is we look at this master deck of all those examples when it's all said and done. Um, between the three cities and that's where we start to to dig and to dive through and look for those examples and repetition that are new and frequent that we can kind of piece together those cases of those specific trends and the why and once we identify Mm -hmm. what that looks like you know we kind of roadmap how we want to tackle the deliverables or content or resource you know and that's ultimately what we decide for the year we're going to write about talk about or we're going to do recipes on that's the backbone for the entirety of the year from like a culinary perspective until we do research again. Um, but yes, recipes are you know fall under that umbrella of things that we want for deliverables to be able to do, you know, iterations of what we had tasted at those particular restaurants mm-hmm. as like, here's that concept. That's what they did. We're going to do that. but We're going to do it slightly different, uh, not to completely rip them off, um, and then make you know very, you know, you know like a bunch of very different recipes along those examples and then be able to have like a, well, I
1: was actually, yeah, I wanted to ask you about this. Cause that's a huge part of what you do is you go out there to gather this information, to use it, not just to, you know, take pictures. You're, you're providing a different kind of service too, but is there anything you've learned about reverse engineering these recipes? Like, is, is there any skills to that, that, it, that you've like learned over the years of that are, are more important? I, Cause it's one thing to go out and eat it all, but then to sit back down in the kitchen after and be like, how did they do this? How can I get this back on a plate? Yeah,
2: well, thankfully, like the internet's a great thing. So, um, yeah, you know, I was you, gonna you, say TikTok has I, taught me a you, lot. You, I can be surprised, like you know how, like, because because these days, you know, chefs are more like an open book about what they're doing than any any other time, right? It's not like this is proprietary. I'm gonna take this to the grave with me. It's like you know somebody wants to raise them up and on a social platform and say, hey, come and do your dish on tv or do it on this you know do right. it on you know instagram live or, or something you know and so they can get it's part, it's of, the part of the experience you know and, and the the restaurant or the chefs get it and they dig it because it gets more people to follow them what they're doing you know it gets more butts in seats whatever it might be um but i mean a lot of times you can find exactly like some of their process points of what they're doing to answer those questions if there's things that i didn't uncover in conversation at the table or didn't get when i was there um and just a lot of the a lot of the journals or writings that are out there about reviews, like real reviews, like eater reviews and things like that, that where they get more of like the nitty gritty physical work of some of those things that might not have been buttoned up on the menu. Mm-hmm.
0: So, can you talk to us about something recently that you ran across that you've that you said, hey, this is an upcoming trend, and I feel like this is something that's going to start appearing on. On recipes or in restaurants wider across the nation, and what what folks can do with it.
1: Or anything that took you by surprise, even? Like, I know a few times I've stepped out recently and I've been like, wow, I've never seen that before. Mm -hmm. And just like wondering if that's like part of a growing trend.
0: How many corn dogs can I see in Chicago right now? How many cookie
1: restaurants did it take for them to realize that this was not gonna be an everlasting trend? Are you talking about the the Korean corn dogs? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. the Korean corn dogs. Sticks opened up within spitting distance of my apartment.
0: It's my constant Instagram feed. I mean, so, I, I I love that people love calm yeah. Dog or whatever it's called in Chicago. But I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I this is how many more? How many Korean corn dogs can 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 one person? So we have eat? two hands. So
2: yeah, two two hands was great. I went there in New York. Yeah. We went to OK Dog. We went to uh, Jongo mm-hmm. Rice and something in Brooklyn. Um, but the Korean corn dogs actually was on the list of things that, that were like actionables for people because you have to think about. Yeah. Our customer base, the people that we consult with, I mean, it's a wide yeah. variety of folks. Bar and Grill, IFS, you know, re- regional chains, yeah. multi-units, healthcare. Mm-hmm. It doesn't yeah. matter, but I mean, Bar and Grill is the, the, probably the sweetest segment for us. And so, like, that is super approachable to a lot of people um, in, in that segment, right? Definitely. And, and I think a lot of people would like to put something like that on their menu or something similar or take that idea and run with it in their own idea like iteration of a Korean stance. You could do whatever you want, some different sausage if you want to in there and do a a breakfast banger and breakfast and do a, you know, some put that on a stick. I mean, who knows? But I think, I think that, um, that was one of the things on the list that that was interesting because it's,
0: Oh, that's, that's so funny. Because
2: the actual, the actual, the the process of making those with like fermenting the actual batter, because it's yeast driven and it is not, it doesn't have corn in it at all. It's all rice and wheat flours. So it makes like texturally, right. it makes it like completely different. It's not really a corn dog, so it's.
0: Um, oh, I actually didn't yeah. know that. I haven't had yeah. one yet. I've just seen them. I know that some of them are filled with the cheese. Exactly. And they, yeah, they're they like a giant mustard. Exactly. Bowl. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. But they're very Instagrammable. They're to- they though. totally it's been are. They
2: totally are. I think by design. Yeah. What? Well, yep. Absolutely. <laughs> when you put one of those up, you know, to a, a big, you know, tall building in the background, and. Looks yeah great. So, looks great i've done it uh, i've done it <laughs> definitely you
0: are an influencer zach <laughs> <laughs>
2: um no and so some of the things that we like we saw some of which that we were trying to collect data to build more cases on was like uh, there's been a huge like mediterranean influence movement um from restaurants opening up the mediterranean is a mm. is a wide uh, is a wide kind of topic But it's something that our customers, I don't think, completely understand. So it's something that I've been talking about and being very vocal about because there's 22 countries around the Mediterranean Sea. So there's a lot of different cultures and geographies and cuisines because of that. So all these Mm -hmm. cuisines really have an affinity for each other and they work well and then play in that space very well. So anything from Iberian Peninsula to the Northern African countries into the Levant, into the Middle East, into the Balkans, all the way around, right? But all those things, and their subcategories like Pita Pockets, for example, like Pita Pockets uh, have become cool again because of the Pita Sabich and the uh, Peter Reyes. So we've seen a lot of you know places doing different iterations of that and being like, really yeah. like using that as a blank canvas as a vehicle, especially in New York. I mean, to the New Yorker on foot, I mean that's a that's a, a great handheld to walk along the way, right? Oh, have, have you have you ever been to Edis in in Williamsburg? Edis, yeah,
1: yeah, and yeah, yeah. I yeah have. So
2: places places yeah. awesome. Um, but they have, a, they have a bunch of really good uh, Pita Pockets on the menu. I'm thinking like Sammy and Susu in the Lower East Side. Uh, it's like a Mediterranean-focused place. Uh, but there's a bunch of places in New York that had really cool, unique uh, Pita Pockets. But to say something like that and say like, Pita Pockets like have been around forever, but like now they're be- right. being cool again. Portability is the one piece of it, but the other thing is like the upbringing of this like Mediterranean influence of like this Abish and the Reyes, and this is why they're becoming now popular again. Um, so different sorts of dips and spreads, like way beyond hummus, are, are cool in the space of Mediterranean, um, like terramassalata, like your whipped cod roe spread, uh, all different sorts of vegetable kind of pureed based, um, you know, like I don't want to say hummuses, but things that don't have chickpeas I in I saw
0: a beet one recently. Yeah. I feel like I'm seeing more like beet hummuses on the menu and like grilled carrot grilled grilled carrot or I don't I don't know I'm um, fired carrot hummus or something like that. But yeah, like the ve- like you're saying the vegetable puree base. Yeah.
2: Uh, restaurant Shukat in New York if you haven't been you need to go. Um Not so they they have, oh. a, they, <laughs> have, a, they, have a, they have a section on their menu that's called when i rip we dip wait no when i rip I, when I rip we dip we dip something like that and then the bo- the, the, the the bottom I have to pull it up the, the bottom section is, is is rip this so it's it's really a section of dips and and rips so breads and spreads and like and I love that because I'm always I'm always been talking I've always been talking about it like you know it's the ripping dips like David Chang when he opened up like uh, Bang Bar I mean in New York I mean that was all rip like ripping dips he was that's what he had called it bang bar isn't around anymore but those were those were bings I know, um, yeah. uh, or the korean version of bings anyway but that whole concept to me is just gold because like easy
1: it's also a very bob's very bob's burgers menu move there to what's that <laughs> to reference a song like that oh <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah when i rip you rip we yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very bob's yeah, right. burgers to uh, me, and I, I loved it it's that's the special reminds- of the day
0: this reminds me of the head of our innovation hub at Relishbox, Mandy Tavonen. Her restaurant that she wants to invent one day is Sips and Dips. And it's only for people that want to like sit around and sip and then they dip. And I'm like, yeah, I think people love it. It's on trend. There you go. She talked about I it I do for the-
1: most of my meals at home, I feel like. Right. Exactly.
0: <laughs>
2: That's awesome. So, um, funny. I'm trying to think, like, different different global variations of crepes. Uh, like, I just referenced Bang Bar, oh, which yeah. is like a variation uh, of the Chinese Bang. It's the Korean version. Yeah. Like, I don't know how to even say it. It's spelled differently than bing. I don't want to say it's bong because I don't think that's right. Um, but um, it is is—it is like doses, the Southern Indian version of crepes, And then you've got like the jian bings, yeah. which are Chinese versions of crepes. But they are very, very different uh, by their makeup, right? So you, you've you got doses which are made of rice and lentils. And so they're gluten-free and vegan by themselves in nature. And so I think it's really approachable to a lot of those menu dietary-focused things or movements of, you know, how people want to eat these days, being clean. So you've got something that is a really, like, flexible crepe that is actually really crunchy in the outside when it, like, coalesces and, and, and stops cooking. And you can fill it with whatever you want. It's a blank canvas at that point, just like a crepe would be. Um, and jengbangs, same thing. Uh, just different ingredients, you know, rice flours and things like that that have different chewy textures um, that are foldable and uh, being able to be kind of relatable to a crepe but you know opportunity for a blank canvas as well there too but we've I seen a lot see, of those things mm-hmm. Doses i was gonna say i can is, see is your
1: your research and your expertise coming through here because you're already like explaining it to me i'm like yeah i could i could make a bang how hard could that be like you know, <laughs> like, like you, you if you can make a crepe <laughs> you, kind of you can make you
2: can make here. a bang you can you know like there are yeah. like the, co- the cooking process is the same really it's like just right. making the batter correctly you know and then whatever you want to do thereafter to put fillings in
1: Right. I guess so. Given the title of this podcast, uh, I was wondering if based like based on the kind of spiel you just gave us, is there anything over the last few years you've learned through this process that you would like to pass on as advice to any kind of independent restaurateurs or anyone who's looking maybe to open up their own place or to launch out on their own? Um, Is there anything that you would tell people to move towards or stay away from Hmm. just based on what you've seen?
2: That's a a tough ask. You know, I don't want to I don't want to give anybody the (laughs)
0: If I, had, if I, I, I mean, had a crystal, yeah, I'm not, if had a I'm not trying ball, to get away the
1: state secrets, but yeah, we said
0: there would be no hardballs yeah. on this on this show. Yeah. But Zach just, back Zach, you can sugarcoat it. One over,
1: yeah. you can sugarcoat it if you want. I, I'm i just very curious because I feel like <laughs> that this is a, uh it's a, you have a lot of information yeah. that you could, you know. Well, I mean, I think could help a lot of people. I, out. I
2: think differentiation is king, right? I mean, if you can, if you can create the demand, that's. That's the. That's when you you know you can make it whatever you want it to be. So, not being similar to anybody on your street, your block, in your radius, or whatever the mileage you're looking for, whatever it might be, just try to be completely different. So, trying to find those gems, those trends. I mean, some things we talked about, even whatever whatever it might be, that is going to put you into that space, and then you can drive it from social to whatever it is to show what you're doing is something that people just have to have. And I think <clears throat> that is. You know, people get really good at that, at that sort of thing of creating that demand. Like, and I'll, this kind of segues into one of the examples of one of the trends that we saw that, that I called is like frozen novelties. So like in New York in December, like, I don't know how many places we went to that would just have like one slushy offering on their menu. Like, you know, like it's not like they're, they're not known for slushies, but like they have this one slushy that like would just be so unique and different. Like Edis is one of those places. They had a a cold brew coffee slushy that was made with cold brew tahini and oat milk. But it's like so Instagramable, it got super like famous because it it looks like it's almost separated. Um, It looks almost like atomic because the way it freezes, right? Coffee is water. Water freezes differently than plant-based fats being tahini and and oat milk. So they kind of granulate differently in the freezing process when the thing churns, mixes. And because of that, you get this kind of like, you know, broken looking, Slushy, but that mouthfeel and experience of tasting it and drinking it is super unique, and it's super unique looking in its own in its own self. But that compared with uh, you know topped with um, different sorts of crazy soft serves that we saw, my gosh, people were just being so unique in that space. Shukat Cat was one of those places. Uh, Kamika was another one of those places in New York. Uh, Italian Japanese uh, mashup concept they actually got nominated for a Beard uh, this year. Um, but I mean, but they're creating the demand. Like they're not saying like, here's your dessert menu. It's like, here's the one soft serve that we offer. And it's like, okay, mm. like, right. I mean, look. I mean, look at that. But then you read the soft serve, and it's like, yolkult soft serve, which is like a Japanese probiotic milk soft serve, with like roasted grapes and kimchi caramel and chicken skin streusel and like, like what? You know? And then like, you eat it, and you're like, <laughs> wow. I could have eaten three of those but it's just trying to find trying to find the that balance of obviously not having too many things on your plate but really being specific to making what you can do to make it different your environment your experience and honing in on the customer experience for yourself and your and your operation right and i think i mean that doesn't give you a whole lot of here's the here's the cheat code but i mean it's really like
0: no, I think it's great advice, though. I do. It is,
1: though. There is no cheat code, There really. is.
2: There isn't. Right. There is not a cheat code. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: You've got if to there do was, what works if for you. If there was,
1: we would have a podcast. It would be one episode long, and we would have packed it up by now.
2: For <laughs> sure. I mean, I, I would go off on talking about, like, umami-rich ingredients for the next two hours of, like, these your cheat codes yeah. of, like, formulas or products If this is why you want to use these and why. Um, but that's for we a, can take that offline.
1: I'll, I'll I'll get in touch with you about that later. <laughs> yeah, to, I'll definitely talk with you about that.
0: <laughs> that's our after hours podcast. Yeah. Or what is it after shift after shift the after drinks shift. or some, Yeah. the after shift drinks podcast yeah. that we want that we want to do next. Yeah. Well, this well this was great. Um, I feel like there's so much there, there's so much knowledge that you have, and it's it's so fascinating to hear about this whole process and all of your your travels and. I don't know, everything that comes out of this. And so it's so fascinating to us. And um, this was really, really interesting to hear you you talk about this today. So, uh, but before you go, we are doing something this season called the tasting menu, where we ask you three quick questions. First thing that comes to your mind. So first question, what's the number one food that you can't live without? (sighs) Boy. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, this is a tough one, I feel like, for you. That is, like, a
2: super... Chefs
1: usually either answer right away or don't, so don't...
2: Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to say eggs.
0: Eggs. Just, a great just answer. because it's so
2: versatile, and I eat, like, I eat six soft-cooked eggs every morning, or soft-scrambled eggs, I would wow. say.
1: Wow. That's the Iron Man stuff, I imagine. Well, <laughs> you know,
2: it's simple, and it fills you up, and it's good for you. I don't know. And I eat really fast, so... Yeah. If I didn't eat fast, I, I couldn't finish six I eggs. It. But I can if I eat fast enough- And there's so many very, things very you can <laughs> do with eggs. I, that's right. what I'm saying. So. I know, you're right. The versatility yeah, is key. I'll just keep yeah, it at exactly. eggs and make it simple.
0: Yeah, love it. Okay, one. that works. What's the most memorable restaurant you visited this past year, or one that really stuck with you?
2: Boy. I'm going to say um, going to Bloom in Chicago.
0: <gasps> that's so funny. I have reservations again there on Saturday yeah? night. The, I, I'm obsessed <laughs> with that place. Yes.
2: I just- it's so good I, i'm just all about so people are you know plant-based blah 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 and i i'm, I'm not a plant-based product person i don't i don't really like to play mm-hmm. in that space because i always say just cook some vegetables really well i mean but when you get into like full proteins and things like that i mean to me that's not where differentiation is for you it's really like going back to the root of it all really and it's like cooking vegetables and being like how can you use global flavors and things to still be if you're trying to be vegan be vegan you know but make it different and that's where the uniqueness lies and that's bloom i mean bloom their concept is plant based but i mean it's cooking real food and being really thoughtful about it's what amazing. they're doing there it's amazing they this won a bib grammont two, yeah. 2 weeks ago um oh. uh, for them and, then, and i think that's i think it's a testament to what they're doing to be in their first year of business and to do just a plant based menu and to win a mm-hmm. bib i think is huge especially i think there's only seven bibs that were handed out in chicago this year
0: Okay, and then the final question is, what's uh, what's your favorite foodie city? Oh, New York, nice. Oh, that was top of. Mind. Oh. <laughs> <love that. clears throat>
1: it's a tough question, honestly. I can I, that is, a, I don't think I could answer that one off the bat. I always, am like, maybe I just say New York, as I'm biased, but it's 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 tough to beat just in sheer volume, but also in the you got to be good to make it here, and, and that that really sets the bar high.
0: Yeah, but it's also the density of restaurants. Like, there's just so it's like everything is packed in in New York. So, it's like you walk around Chicago and we've got like yeah, there, there, there's tons of restaurants. Don't get me wrong, but it's more a little more spread out. In New York, it's just like this density where you can go here and here and here and here and there's people everywhere and there's food and culture and I don't know. New York is just harder it
1: is for me to just to perform errands and not stop at three different places <laughs> just pick up like yeah. The food. yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, It's great, though. It's a, it's a blessing and a curse. <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much again, Chef Nick. It was a pleasure having you on today. Oh, thanks
1: for having me. It was great to talk to you, Nick. This was, we learned a lot.
0: Having a hard time keeping up with all of the restaurant industry news? Check out the Back of House News podcast that drops every Thursday. The Back of House News podcast cuts through the noise and covers all of the latest restaurant and food service industry headlines that you need to know now go to backofhouse.io or listen wherever you get your podcasts that's backofhouse news podcast and backofhouse.io